Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the LSC. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director of the LSC. It's one of the major pleasures and honors of the director to be able to introduce the distinguished and famous guests who come to speak at the LSC, and it's even better when they are your friends. So it is a great pleasure to introduce tonight's lecture by Professor Gilles Capel. Professor Capel holds a chair in Middle East and Mediterranean Studies at our partner institution in Paris, Sciences Po. He spent a year at the LSE between 2009-2010 as the Philippe Romain Chair in History and International Affairs, and he continues to be associated with LSE Ideas as a senior fellow. LSE Ideas is a key LSE program that looks at major issues in international affairs and diplomacy worldwide, publishing key books like After the Arab Spring, Power Shift in the Middle East, The New Geopolitics in Southeast Asia, a series of reports on major issues around the world that are of enduring significance but also immediate contemporary significance in the world. Professor Capel, in the same sense, is a scholar who has done work of enduring academic importance and also work that speaks immediately to contemporary issues. He is a leading expert on Islam, Islamism, and the contemporary Arab world. He is best known for his books on radical Islam and for his regular contributions to public debate in both Europe and the Middle East, where the people he interviewed 40 years ago are now the people in power in a number of countries, the Islamist student radicals of an earlier generation now grown up. He holds degrees in Arabic and philosophy and doctorates in both sociology and political science. Before his stint at the LSE, he had spent time as a visiting professor at both New York University and Columbia University. Tonight's talk is entitled Islamists in Power, Governing the Arab World. More than a year after the outbreak of revolutions across the Middle East and North Africa, Professor Capel will discuss whether the electoral success of Islamist parties represents their co-optation of revolutionary movements or their embrace of democracy. He will consider the very different backgrounds against which events unfolded in Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, Yemen, and Syria, all countries he has been visiting continuously and actively in recent years, and he will comment on the consequences of events in each state for the Arab political arena and for the relationship of these countries with the West. I hope you will join me in welcoming Professor Gilles Capel back to the LSE. Gilles. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Craig. It's, uh, it's, it's a great pleasure to be here, and it's uh, always uh, a treat to be back at the LSC. It's an extra treat to be introduced by you. Uh, you made me blush with all those things, nice things you said about me. You just forgot one thing, which was the most important, which was that uh, I had the pleasure to serve in the board of directors of the Social Science Research Council when you were president. So this was... Uh, this is, your, this is your modesty that prevented you to say this. I have to, to stress it. And it was uh, being um, in the SS, uh, SSRC with, uh, with you was, was, uh, was a, great, uh, a great pleasure. And I, I learned a lot. And I, I hope I 
and I tried to implement some of the things I learned from you uh, in, in France. I'm not sure I managed, but uh, that's another story. Anyway, so we're going to discuss the, the Middle East today. The, um, as, I, as I mentioned to, uh, to Craig and to, to Arne earlier on, um, some of you may remember when I was at, uh, here at LSE, um, I, I, w I just was preparing a, a big survey we did on the, uh, the outskirts of, of Paris and France and, and the, the area where the riots started in 2005. And while I was busy in, our, in the outskirts for big cities, uh, six revolutions took place in the Middle East when I was not looking. So uh, I had to, to go back there right after I finished doing domestic uh, work. And so uh, over the last year and a half, I, I traveled intensively to North Africa and the Middle East, something like 30 times, went uh, sort of eight times to Tunisia, uh, six times to Egypt, four times to Libya, uh, to the Gulf, to, and I'm just back from a trip in October, uh, which took me to Qatar, Bahrain, uh, Lebanon, Turkey, and finally uh, I crossed into free with or without uh, quotation marks, Syria. So this is what I would like to sort of put in perspective. And uh, uh, Islamist movements uh, that in the Arab world had uh, not uh, been able to have access to power were suddenly catapulted into power, if I may say so, after the Arab Springs. Arab Springs that they had not started in the uh, inception of which they really took no part, uh, though uh, in many countries like uh, Tunisia, uh, Egypt, Libya to an extent, Yemen to an extent, and now with what is happening within the, the ranks of the revolutionaries in, uh, in Syria, uh, the uh, Islamists, whatever we mean by that, and we'll try to clarify a little later, are, are now um, in positions of power i.e. they have to deliver. And uh, this, of course, is introducing tremendous changes uh, in, their, uh, in their software and also in their hardware, I think. And uh, to, to give you, to start with an example and, uh, which has to do with hardware, let me briefly comment on uh, today's events. This is what uh, LSE Ideas is for, right? Uh, that is to say, uh, let's try to have, uh, to have a look at, at what happens in Gaza. Um, why would uh, what would would Bibi Netanyahu decide to strike at uh, at Hamas now? Uh, well, some may say because there are domestic reasons, because he's running for uh, for election in January, and because uh, Hamas has uh, accumulated weaponry through the, the tunnels. Um, actually, most of it probably um, during the first year of the Egyptian Revolution. Uh, missiles that are able to hit Tel Aviv, and uh, therefore, uh, someone who can destroy the the, uh, the arsenal of uh, Hamas um, is someone who has concern for the security of Israel, and then should be voted in, and should even be voted in by. The, uh, the non-traditionally uh, pro-Netanyahu, uh, Tel Aviv, uh, uh, nightlife people who just listen to the sounds of missiles uh, falling in the sea near the nightclubs, and so he might have another voting bank and constituency now. That's one thing. But 
One other thing is that, in my opinion, the reason why he decided to target Hamas, knowing that it would not meet a major reaction from the uh, Sunni leaders, and amongst the leaders we have the Islamists and also the Muslim Brothers, part of which Hamas is supposed to be, is that he knows that Hamas is in dire straits because it is somewhere on the fault line between Shias and Sunnis or between Iranians and Arabs, which is now becoming the big issue which is casting its long-term shadow over the developments of the Middle East. Um, this may be surprising to you because Hamas is Sunni and, uh, and uh, Hamas is uh, an offspring of the Muslim Brotherhood. But most of Hamas' support came from Damascus, Damascus which, is not, which was not under Assad père et fils, a place which was famous for its great love for Muslim brothers in general but who was very much present in, um, in Syria, um, particularly uh, under Bashar al-Assad, uh, was Iran and uh, Iranian intelligence and Iranian access to, to Iran. And if you go now to the Middle East, if you listen to the Friday sermons like the one I listened to um, a month ago in, in Tripoli, in Lebanon, uh, close to Bab Tibani, one of the big Qatari-funded mosques where Salafi, uh, the Salafi uh, super preacher of Lebanon now, uh, Sheikh Salem Rifai, uh, would talk about the greatest threat to the Ummah. What is this greatest threat? It's the unholy alliance of Iran, Iraq, delivered to Iran courtesy of the U.S. and the U.K., uh, Syria. Hezbollah and Hamas. This is the group, this is the reenactment of the sort of Shia crescent, if you wish, which is threatening the Sunni world. Strange. I mean, all the aforementioned, okay, I mean, they, they fall into the Shia or the semi Shia or the Shiaized, whatever, uh, universe. But why Hamas? Well, because Hamas was perceived as part and parcel as of the politics of expansion of Iran from the mid-2000s onwards. And when you talk to those uh, Sunni um, activists and militants and politicians, and I, I heard the same in the Bahrain political establishment, of course, uh, they would list the following, you know, hey, you have 2005 Ahmadinejad, 2006 the 33-day war between Hezbollah and uh, Israel, which made of uh, Shia uh, activist, uh, Secretary General of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, the herald and hero of the, of the champion of the Arab world, something which, of course, did not please many of uh, Sunni leaders. Uh, 2007, Hamas takes power in Gaza with a blunt move, which was not uh, a bold move, which was not typically a Muslim brother uh, way of dealing. Then 2008, uh, 
um, Hezbollah turns its weapons against, against the Hariris in, 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 uh, in West Beirut, and so on and so forth. So what is happening now, to some extent, is a sort of tit-for-tat uh, in Syria in particular from Sunni groups and circles in order to counterbalance, to counterweight, and to oust, to belittle uh, Iranian, what they perceived as the Iranian threat or the Iranian expansion. Now, what does, ha- does that have to do with what is happening now in Gaza and Israel? Um, targeting Hamas from the Israeli point of view, I mean, this is the right moment because Hamas is, is halfway, you know, between the two, and it's weakened. And uh, Khaled Mishal is perceived as a man who's very close to the Iranian leadership, whereas Haniyeh is uh, closer to the traditional uh, Sunni leadership. Therefore, Hamas uh, has contradictions, and they will have difficulties capitalizing politically on this issue. And look at Egypt, and this is where we get into the core of our topic tonight. What is the Muslim Brother government of Egypt doing to, for Hamas, to, to help Hamas? Well, they have closed the tunnels, if you remember, and uh, which funnel so many weapons to, to, to Hamas under the, the Sinai, courtesy of the local Bedouins. And uh, actually, uh, Morsi seized power, really seized power, due to the, the border incident when uh, he was uh, in early July, when he was, uh, he was keen to, to point at Marshal Tantawi and not Kofi Annan, but Semi Annan, his deputy, i.e. the heads of the Supreme Council of Armed Forces, which hampered uh, Morsi's attempt to control power after he was elected, um, and he had them replaced. And after that, you know, Egypt, Muslim brother Egypt, uh, strangely enough, instead of being, you know, the, the best uh, supporter of Hamas, had a harsher policy towards Hamas than some of the, the Mubarak uh, regime days. Uh, why was that? Because Muslim brothers in Egypt have to deliver And this is uh, one of the terrible contradictions that they face, i.e. that, you know, this is a culture that was developed in opposition, as far as the MBs are concerned, for 80 years. And um, they built a system which was, if you wish, they built a sort of counter-society. And this is why they were so ill at ease originally with the revolution in Egypt, for instance. I mean, the the youth of the Muslim brothers, as they like to call themselves at the time, would go down, would take to the streets, would, uh, would join forces with their, their age cohort. But the, the Tanzim, the, the apparatus, uh, would, would, would remain uh, out of it because they did not like that. They were comfortable with this sort of dual system of power in Egypt. I mean, they were, they were a sort of counter-state uh, the state dealt with military issues, with international politics, with Israel, uh, and the brothers dealt with education, welfare, uh, religion, to an extent. Uh, religion was being stolen from them more and more by the Salafists, and I shall go back to that in a minute. And uh, 
So the revolution unsettled this balance. And, you know, they, they had a different idea as of how to take power from inside. Suddenly they had to, to deal with this, those newcomers, those young people that they did not really feel comfortable with. And, um, and then they, um, they found themselves in a position where the issue was not having to deal with brothers, with militants, with... Uh, anymore, but with voters, and, with, uh, and voters uh, votes because they, they want something in return. And with this, this advent of democracy, I mean, maybe we should say that uh, swiftly, but uh, at least a major change in the mindset of uh, Arab societies as of now. Whether or not this democracy will be institutionalized is another matter, and it's too early to say. But what is very striking, and that's what I usually say to people who say to me, ha-ha, the, the Arab Spring is over, now it's the Islamist winter. It may be the case, or let's say it's still the fall. Uh, but um, one thing which is very different, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm someone who traveled in those countries for the last four decades, and this is a sea change, definitely, is that there is free speech, and people are not afraid to uh, to say what uh, what they want, what they have in mind, and uh, uh, even though, um, for instance, in Tunisia, a country where I've been a lot though, those last um, this last year and a half. Every attempt by the Nahada uh, uh, leadership to control the press or to uh, set standards that would restrict freedom of speech in the name of religion, uh, the uh, sanctific, no, uh, preserve, how do you say, tajrim and muqaddisat, the uh, criminalization of, um, of, um, criticism of, of sanctities. I mean, pardon my French. Basically. And uh, uh, this was challenged by a number of civil society groups, uh, secularists, of course, and non-secularists, who, uh, who, would be, who would find such resonance in society that they were compelled to, uh, you know, to backpedal. And, uh, and to a large extent, the same took place in Egypt. So uh, this has, uh, this has uh, led uh, those, uh, those Islamist movements to, to learn about, about the, the politics of, uh, you know, of, of having to deal with people's life. And, uh, and they have to deliver. And the challenges are tremendous. The challenges are tremendous because uh, Egypt is in quasi-bankruptcy and uh, has to, to deal with the fact that without the billion uh, point three something uh, dollars which is uh, delivered uh, yearly by the U.S. to the uh, Egyptian armed forces, there would be no Egyptian armed forces anymore. And in order to, to cut a deal with the armed forces so that the brothers remain in power, they cannot dry up American funding. And if they, uh, if they say we're not interested in being the, the gatekeeper at the border in, uh, in Hamas, this uh, 
con the American Congress is not going to pay for them anymore. So this is something that the brothers would never thought they had to deal with, would never have wished they, they would deal with. And, um, and there they are. Uh, conversely, uh, they, uh, they have to, to pass alliances, uh, governing alliances, which is something quite complicated. I mean, in, in Tunisia, for instance, they, uh, uh, they govern uh, together with uh, a coalition of um, you know, junior partners who are secularist uh, or secular, uh, laïc, uh, say that in French, it's better, uh, parties, the uh, Marzouki's um, uh, Congress for the Republic and um, uh, Ben Jaffer's um, uh, coalition. Um, those junior parties, even though they're dependent on Nahda voters to be elected and so on, have their own agenda. And if uh, global society perceives that they betray their ideals for uh, Nahda, they're going to lose it. I mean, I, 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 I met with their leaders a number of times in Tunisia, and I remember uh, an interview, a long, longish interview with uh, Marzouki, the president of the republic, and, uh, and we were discussing the, the coalition policies and uh, politics, and he, uh, he would tell me, you know, Nahda is a sort of petty bourgeois thing, which is not into changing, the, toppling the social hierarchies. They'd rather repaint it green, but they have a big following, and we have to access their following. We are far more on the uh, social upheaval side, and th there is a major contradiction between us. So we're in the coalition as long as Nahda has this and that social agenda. We're against those people in Nahda who consider this and that. And so this puts Nahda under duress because they were not used to deal with that. And simultaneously, one phenomenon which, which took place and which was uh, very striking is as most of the brothers went into politics and uh, they found you know, avenues of... Uh, of uh, opportunities uh, for, for politics because they, they needed uh, manpower, they, to a large extent, they deserted the mosques. And uh, with uh, the, their, if not incapacity, but their difficulties to deliver and to hold up to the promises, because a year and a half after the revolutions, I mean, the the employment situation in Tunisia, in, in Egypt, and other uh, countries which uh, uh, underwent the revolution is, is just a catastrophe. Uh, and you hear more and more people uh, telling you uh, Mubarak was uh, a tyrant, uh, he was a terrible guy, but under Mubarak there, there, was, there were jobs. And the same is true with Ben Ali in Tunisia nowadays and things like that. And, um, and those people who are disenchanted with, uh, with the, uh, the Muslim brother governing elite and establishment are now um, keen, and to some of them, to, um, to listen to, uh, to, to the Salafists and to, to Salafi uh, preaching, which is a, a, very, uh, a very strange phenomenon and a very bizarre outcome of the revolution because um, to, to go back to, um, 
to the way revolutions moved from the sort of uh, uh, what was called the Internet or the Twitter or the Facebook or what have you revolution. In the good old days when people in the West, after they thought that Arabs were about jihad and bin Laden and things like al-Qaeda, suddenly they saw all those kids on, on, on Facebook, and there it was. They're just like us. We were mistaken. You know, nothing to see. I mean, Arabists, Orientalists go back on retirement. You, you just know nothing. They're just like us. It's just like what happened in Eastern Europe. Done. Then, a year later, it's completely different. It's, uh, oh no, back to case uh, to uh, stage one, right? Uh, what happened? What, um, what, what, what created this sort of change, this unforeseen change? Um, among other things, uh, the fact that if we look at the Arab world at large, I mean, it's not homogenous. It's not homogenous. And uh, the three countries in which uh, revolutions took place if we understand by revolution, I mean, there, are more, there is more than one definition, and Arne here can testify on that. Uh, uh, the fact that the Ancien Régime was toppled, that uh, Mubarak, uh, Kazafi, and, uh, and uh, Ben Ali were ousted, and uh, new elites and new whatever took place. Those three revolutions that happened on the North African continent happened in countries that were fairly cohesive. I mean, I, I know that there are Copts and, uh, and Muslims in Egypt, but the um, uh, by Syrian um, um, uh, paradigm, by uh, measure, they're, they're fairly cohesive. Uh, and also in countries where domestic issues are more important or more significant or less pressing than international issues. Right? as opposed to this, let's call it Zone A, even though it has nothing to do with the uh, Israeli-Palestinian uh, peace process, or non-peace process, or peace non-process. Uh, zone A, Zone B, and Zone C. Zone B, like uh, Bahrain or Bitrol, uh, is the uh, Gulf countries, where then international issues are far more pressing. If uh, oil does not run through the Straits of Hormuz on a, on a daily basis, then you'll have to walk to the LSE, and this is a different issue. And uh, whereas whatever happens in Tunisia will have remote consequences for your daily life. So this is not exactly the same. It's not the same magnitude, and uh, Bahrain uh, revolution was put down for a number of reasons, because it had to do with the Sunni-Shia divide, which I mentioned earlier on, and also because it was perceived as potentially destabilizing the, uh, the oil and gas exporting economy, which is one of the two pillars by which the Middle East is linked to the world system, the other one being Israel and the uh, Palestinian-Israeli conflict, if we think, see the, the larger picture. So... People in Zone B, i.e. Uh, uh, the Sheikhdoms, the Oildoms, the Kingdoms, the Gazdoms, and what have you, uh, were panic-stricken when those revolutions happened because those guys were talking about democracy 
accountability, transparency, rule of law, what have you, I mean, all anathema. And um, so what to do with them? Where res- uh, responses varied, and uh, Qatar was very proactive, and uh, Al Jazeera uh, jumped on the bandwagon immediately and um, was, uh, was keen to, to ask for the downfall of the Ancien Regime, uh, broadcasting live from Tahrir Square um, day in, day out, and was very keen to give the pulpit as much as they could to, Muslim bro- to, to the Muslim brothers so that they would um, impersonate, if you wish, the discourse, they would hijack sooner than later the discourse of the revolution and put it into their own parlance. And uh, this, if I may say so, I got from the horse's mouth because I, uh, a month ago I had a very lengthy interview with Wadah Hanfar in Qatar, who was the director general of Al Jazeera for eight years, who had to leave uh, or who left in, uh, in 2011 in September because WikiLeaks uh, leaked um, a cable from the American uh, embassy in, uh, in Doha where uh, it showed that he was amenable to some uh, uh, friendly pressure from Americans so as to make a coverage of Iraq that was sort of not too detrimental to the interests of our preferred superpower. And um, the... Um, um, so whatever the reason, he said it had nothing to do with that, that he was fed up, he wanted to do something else. So he was he's keen to publicize himself. Now, he talked a lot, and uh, we have a rather good relationship. And, uh, and he explained to me in, in, in details how, in detail, how Al Jazeera w- was uh, organized, the coverage of the revolution, how it prepared for it, and how... How, how he viewed the future of the, of the Arab world as a sort of blend between Muslim brother culture and their former nationalist opponents that they want to, to blend into um, a sort of one, uh, uh, what is called in, uh, in Middle Eastern humor, the, the Al Jazeera mix. Right? Uh, and so the sort of hijacking or the sort of... Uh, uh, whatever you call it, the, trans, the transformation of the revolutions into a Muslim uh, brother-led uh, institutionalization of the post-revolutionary era, of course, had a lot to do with the tremendous help that Qatar provided to the brothers on all grounds. But that was not the case for all uh, Arab countries because um, Saudi Arabia... Uh, was and still is very hostile to the Muslim brothers, uh, whom they perceive as competitors for the supreme legitimacy of Islam that they, they claim for themselves because their uh, king is the custodian of the two holy places. And uh, the brothers claim that they have a sort of wider and more important, more in-depth, more widespread legitimacy, something that Qatar would share with pleasure with them, of course, uh, because there are no holy places in, in Qatar. There is only gas and Al Jazeera. And uh, so the Saudis were far more, um, uh, far more cautious, and uh, they, at first they would not back those revolutions at all. 
And uh, when they had to do something, uh, what the first thing that King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia did in February when he came back from his yearly uh, visit of hospitals in, in, in the United States was to take out of his own pocket 130 billion, not million, billion dollars, which is quite a lot, uh, to fix things at home. Uh, Salafis got a good chunk of it and uh, used it also to export Salafism overseas. And um, just like the Saudis in the past had used the uh, the World Muslim League and other conduits for, uh, for influence over the, the Arab world after the, the oil boom, uh, the export of Salafism has become a very potent um, soft power policy, foreign policy for them, if you wish, in order to have, um, uh, to have people uh, whom they can rely on in the Arab world, which are not of the Muslim brother uh, uh, linking and uh, leaning, sorry. And uh, one thing which was uh, very interesting to me when I, I was in Egypt uh, uh, many times at, uh, in April 2011, so uh, I met uh, one of the people uh, who identified with the youth I had uh, written about in uh, The Prophet and Pharaoh and the the book I wrote about uh, Islamists in Egypt in the 80s. And uh, so, you know, he liked to talk about the good old days with me and things like that. And I said, what about politics? And he's a leader, leading Salafist, now Mamdouh Ismail, who is now famous because he, he was elected later on a member of parliament and uh, called for azan, for prayer in the parliament. You may remember that. And uh, at the time he said, no, 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 we are not going to go into politics. Uh, we are against politics. This is not uh, for us. It's for the brothers and whatever. We, 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 we preach the masses and, um, so that they become better Muslims. Okay. And then something happened in July. They all turned into politics. They went uh, to the ballots and they, they, they garnered a quarter of the votes, which clearly was an inroad into the constituency of, that the brothers would have liked to control. And the same is true in Tunisia. Uh, in, uh, in Egypt, uh, the, the voting banks of the, of the Salafists came uh, prominently from, uh, uh, from the Hashawiyat, from the shanty towns, from the derelict, uh, informal uh, outskirts of the big cities. And, uh, in, uh, and this is clearly a challenge for, uh, for the Muslim brothers. Uh, the same is true in, um, in Tunisia. I, I, in September, I, I spent quite some time in Sidi Bouzid, which, as you know, is the city which sparked the revolution in, uh, in um, December uh, 2010. This is the place where Mohammed Bouazizi, the, uh, the, the streets, uh, uh, vegetable peddler um, set himself ablaze uh, and um, now the, the significant political force in Sidi Bouzid is uh, Salafists uh, on uh, the Mohammed Bouazizi uh, Boulevard which is the big streets of, uh, of Sidi Bouzid now the, the main mosque has been taken over by the Salafists and the day I was there they had just uh, 
destroyed the last place where you could buy beer legally in Sidi Bouzid, which translates into the fact that now you have to buy it at the black market, twice the price. And uh, some of the of the guys who destroyed the, the bars actually were linked to the bootlegging market, I was told. And, uh, and they grew a beard so that they could be okay. And uh, the... Uh, they were controlling the souk already, the, the, the market. Uh, the Saturday it takes place on Saturdays on Sidi Bouzid because uh, with the fact, with the police that had disappeared, uh, there was need for a new order so people would not uh, be uh, mugged uh, in, or have seen their property stolen in the, when they get to the market and so on and so forth. So they were building a sort of counter order and uh, demonizing Nahda because Nahda to them was... Uh, just uh, the successor of the Ben Ali regime, and they had really changed nothing, right? And what what struck me was that you had this uh, this in Tunisia, in particular, um, the revolution started with an alliance of the 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 young uh, rural and urban poor where there was still a rather strong influence uh, of, um, how should I say, left, leftist unionized groups. Uh, the union of, uh, of school teachers, the unions of, you know, there were a sort of organic intellectuals of the left, if you wish, at, at, a, at, a, at a lower level of society. And, uh, and the revolution managed to become a revolution in the Marxian stance. You know, Marx has it that the revolution is characterized as what he calls in the, as a moment of enthusiasm that gathers, that brings together different social strata, strata that forget about their own peculiar agenda and join agendas so as to oust the powers that be. Afterwards, then they fight and at the end of the day, one of them wins. And so in Tunisia, you had this young urban poor and the, uh, and the urban middle class, even the secularist, and uh, who had benefited from Ben Ali's power, but who at the end of the day considered that, you know, the extortion that the Ben Ali gang, uh, and the same was true with Egypt and the... And the and the Sada and uh, Mubarak's family and so on and so forth uh, ex, uh, implemented on society was such that they thought it was detrimental to their own interests. So uh, I have this anecdote of a former student of Sciences Po. We were students together who is now uh, a rather wealthy entrepreneur in Tunisia. And once we, we had a drink um, in, in La Marsa, in the residential area near Tunis, sipping uh, Muscat de Calibia, which is a delicious uh, Tunisian wine over the sea. It was so beautiful. And we were discussing things in the last days of Ben Ali, and he said, you know, to be extorted by a cop, a cop, sorry, Ben Ali is, was a police officer, is bad enough, and Ben Ali's wife was a hairdresser. But be, being extorted by a hairdresser, this is terrible. Say, I can't feel your pain. Uh, but the, uh, there was this feeling that, you know, the, the system did not deliver, had, um, had turned to, towards its own um, interests and uh, 
to a large extent because the Ben Ali's, the Mubarak's, and the others benefited from 9-11. I mean, they, they got 10 extra years because they, you know, the usual pardon sentence was better Ben Ali than Ben Laden. Well, after Ben Laden failed, uh, could not turn Iraq into an Islamic emirate and so on and so forth, it was a less pressing danger. And uh, for a number of people inside and outside the Middle East, this... Uh, uh, maintaining those uh, archaic dictators in power was not, uh, was not as pressing as it was. Now, this coalition that, was, that initiated the revolution, if you wish, uh, between the young urban poor and the, and the modernizing elite, that was joined afterwards by the brothers who, who joined the bandwagon and uh, that was captured by the brothers to a large extent, uh, fell short of delivering socially. And this is, in my view, my, my gut feeling, and also what I, what I get from the field, uh, what people, many people feel a year and a half after, or two, close to two years after. And, uh, and therefore, the, um, the group that manages to, to sort of capture dissatisfaction, social dissatisfaction, and translate it into... Islamic terms, which are used against the brothers, are the Salafists. The irony of the thing is that the Salafists are leaning towards Saudi Arabia, which is not the epitome of social revolution, to, uh, uh, to say, uh, to use a euphemism. And uh, therefore, so you have this new political landscape where you have uh, Islamists between being taken between the hammer and the anvil, I mean, the hammer of Salafists, Salafists and the anvil of secularists, uh, with uh, the necessity to deliver, to to deal with issues they are not familiar with, to um, to deal with an international environment uh, with which they are not familiar, and um, and um, being not very well equipped to do all that. Now, one I still have two and a half minutes, because Craig told me not to talk more than uh, 45 minutes, otherwise he'll expel me. Uh, the, um, uh, one last word uh, to go back to um, what, is, uh, what is happening in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the Levant, in Zone C, as in Syria. Uh, Levant, uh, the Levant is, 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 is a much more fragmented um, part of the of the Arab world than North Africa or, or the Gulf, and uh, and the cohesiveness of Syria, Lebanon, Iraq is you know is to be questioned. And it's, uh, Lebanon and Iraq have undergone uh, lengthy uh, sectarian wars, civil wars over the last uh, decades, as we all know. And uh, Syria has more or less the same fabric. So. What started in Syria as a movement that was just like the others. I mean, uh, the revolution in Syria was sparked on the 15th of March 2011 by kids who went on uh, writing on the walls of the city of Dara in southern Syria, close to the Jordanian border. The Sha'ab Yurid Iskat and Nizam, the people won the downfall of the regime. The same slogan that was used in. Tunisia, Egypt, and the like. Then the police caught them. They, 
they were uh, tortured, the families were abducted, humiliated, and so on and so forth. And then there was a cycle of, of violence that quickly enough turned in uh, a confrontation between the ruling uh, group based on the Alawi minority and the majority uh, Sunni population. And um, one of the big challenges now is uh, how to, in a way, how to bring back Syria into the fold of a social and political revolution which is not hijacked by the Sunni Shia or the Iranian versus uh, uh, Arab uh, divide and which is not making of Syria a sort of quid pro quo or tit for tat for Bahrain, right? And this is probably one of the reasons to, to end on a LSE ideas uh, note, why um, after the, uh, the, uh, there was a new um, sort of coordination, coordinating committee of, Syrian, of the Syrian opposition created in Syria, in, in um, Qatar, in the Sheraton Hotel in Doha, which is the locus of, of policy in the, in the Arab world. I mean, there is a whole chapter of my the travelogue I, I wrote out of those travels devoted to the Sheraton Hotel in Doha. And uh, um, why is it that uh, France, always leading the way, and Britain, always following suit, uh, recognized uh, the opposition as the legitimate uh, representative of the Syrian people? We, we now have uh, our first Alawi uh, Syrian ambassador in, in Paris, who's uh, actually the representative of the opposition. We never had an Alawi ambassador in the past. Right? And, um, and I guess uh, the Britons are, are, are going to have one soon. Why is that? Because if the opposition remains what it is now, that is to say where you have an increasing role which is played by the guys with a lot of facial hair uh, because these are the, this is the way to get Qatar and Saudi money. And uh, if you go on the field in Syria where I was, uh, the, the ammunition, the monies, and everything, this comes from the Gulf now. Nothing almost comes from the European Union because people are afraid. You know, the lessons learned from Afghanistan. What did Al-Qaeda do with, uh, with uh, uh, ground-to-air uh, missiles that were given to them to down the Soviet planes? And uh, so the issue is to, to, to make inroads into the opposition and to, to have access to to it so that the opposition will be able to be uh, more sort of uh, all-encompassing and uh, bring into its ranks representatives of the minority groups who would otherwise either consider the opposition is solely about guys with beards, uh, sort of side with the regime until, uh, until the end. And this is one of the big challenges uh, as of now. So I will stop here. I beg for forgiveness for my two uh, minutes, uh, uh, two extra minutes, but I think you've been used to me taking more time. So <laughs> this is my deference to you becoming British. Ah, so that was terrific, Gilles. Thank you. <laughs> and there's time for some questions, so let me invite the audience to ask some. Do you want me to call on people, or do you want to call on them? Go ahead and do your. So please go ahead. It's it's a daunting task. I mean, this is. Yeah. Oh, I, 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 talk, I talk, and you move your. <laughs>
I'll point. Uh, could you just, may... the only thing, I, if you could kindly introduce yourself. Not yes. that I will choose to an answer or not to answer according to your name. So oh, I see, okay. Well, let's hope you like it. Uh, I'm a member of the public. My name's David Harrington. Uh, just to take you back to the more mundane opening of your speech about why Netanyahu took a pop at uh, I, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Why, could why? you put your mic somewhere? Yeah, can you no, hear me no, now? No, better. Down. Okay. It's a sound machine. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. I just want to take you back to the more mundane matter which you started your speech with about yeah. why Netanyahu took a pop at Hamas. I thought it was more to do with them firing rockets over the border. It could have been Hamas or it could have been there are other people around in Gaza, maybe, who knows, Al-Qaeda, whatever. And it, and it was the response to that rather than anything maybe to do with Hamas. Uh, well, no, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a much broader issue, I mean, as I, as I mentioned. And, you know, um, for Israel uh, and for its Western allies, uh, the big issue is the Iranian nuclear threat. Um, whether or not there's going to be a strike at Iran is debated and debatable. Uh, but everything that can weaken Iran is welcome. Now, Iran used to, um, you know, sublet part of its foreign policy to its surrogates on the Mediterranean coast. Hezbollah, of course, and to an extent, because Hamas is not entirely an Iranian surrogate, but it was under... Iranian influence, at least partly, so that it would deflect pressure against Iran on its own territory on the Gulf. And, you know, the 33-day war in, uh, in July 2006 was, was a major Iranian victory. Not so much against Israel. It was a victory against Israel, probably, but uh, against, against the Sunni establishment. Uh, my um, friend Bernie Haeckel uh, from Princeton, I remember, wrote um, an op-ed in, uh, in the New York Times, probably, but being a frog, I read it in the International Herald Tribune, uh, uh, that said that after that, Al-Qaeda was in the back seat, right? So Iran was championing the Arab cause. Uh, now, the issue is that, you know, to think that Iran has overstretched to some extent and to, to use it where it's the weaker. Uh, Hezbollah is in very, a very difficult situation. And I was in Lebanon the other day, and uh, I know a number of the, um, of the Hezbollah uh, leadership. And, um, you know, usually I, I have access to them without problems. This, this time it was totally impossible to talk to them. And they, one of them, whom I know better to the others than the others, I, we had an appointment. When I called and said, where are we meeting? He said, I'm sorry, uh, Stez, uh, we can't meet because the, uh, the party, you know, it's a Stalinist thing, and the party said, no, no way, no communication. The only one who speaks is the Secretary General. Also because there are tensions within Hezbollah. Not everybody welcomes the, the party line that is to say total support to, to Bashar al-Assad. And the way um, Nasrallah talked was to, uh, 
to launch the so-called Ayub drone over Israel, you know, in, on 6th October, to try to precisely to recall the good old days of 2006, of the 33-day war, when Hezbollah was the, the chief opponent to, to Israel. Now, attacking Hezbollah, I think, would get apt from on, on, on the Israeli side, which they could have done also, would... Uh, was getting absolutely no green light from, from Europe. They don't care or from America. They care a little more because the situation in Lebanon is so explosive that it might have uh, unforeseeable consequences if, if Lebanon exploded now uh, on the Syrian crisis, make it even more difficult to deal with. Whereas, you know... Uh, um, Inflicting a blow on Hamas, which is perceived and will, which will be perceived by the Iranian regime as uh, a blow against them, a strike against them, is far more productive. And uh, you have to keep in mind that this issue of nuclear Iran is not only a major concern for the Israelis, for the Europeans, for everybody who who drinks oil uh, for breakfast or gas, but it's also a major, major concern for the Gulf Arabs. And uh, whenever you go to a, uh, a meeting with Gulf Arabs, where there are no journalists, or I mean, it's, uh, this is phrased in the open. I mean, why don't we try to find some sort of under-the-table agreement with the Israelis or the whatever in order to get rid of the, of the Iranian nuclear threat? It's difficult to implement. And uh, striking at Hamas is, is a means to, uh, to inflict a, a blow to the, to the Iranians. And this is, this is a key issue. Also, the fact that you know, is, uh, um, he, um, he perceives that... Um, because of the, um, of the uh, upgraded weaponry that Hamas now has due to the, the lax control of the tunnels during year one of the, of the Egyptian revolution, the, um, therefore uh, putting down the, the domestic threat is, is something important for his own political stake and for the elections in general. Okay, good. There are two in the back there. I'm one after the other, they will have to decide between themselves who goes first. Such gentlemanly matters. Professor, uh, you mentioned that there is a difference between uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar regarding their there's attitudes. A, there's a big difference, yes. Yes, <laughs> there is a big difference. This is indeed a, a very crucial divergence. Meanwhile, they are members of the Gulf Cooperation Council. So what kind of influence do you think that this difference may exert on the future of this council? Should I take the other question? Yusuf Sharif, from graduate student at King's College in London. Um, it, there, is a growing, there is a growing rumor in the Arab world, especially in Egypt and Tunisia, that uh, the Muslim Brotherhood is using the Salafis as, let's say, paramilitary wing or something like that, mm -hmm. especially among the secular elites of La Marsa, where I am from, by the way. What do you think of this, uh, of this vision of uh, Salafis as Muslim Brotherhood? Okay. Well, the two questions are more or less linked, right? Because... Uh, the Saudi Arabia is one of the main sponsors of the Salafists, 
and uh, Qatar is the main, one of the main sponsors of the Muslim Brothers work. Uh, let me start by the gentleman's question. This is the, it's not your gallant French, but it's, the, it's my being British. No. The, um, um, uh, yes, I, I know. I know about that, and this is being uh, said. And, you know, this was fueled largely by a, a video that was recently released with, uh, of Hanushi uh, uh, chatting with young Salafists and telling them, wait, you know, for the time being, the army, education system, the administration and the like is still under control of the secular, or the lake of the secularists. Uh, but, you know, you and I more or less have the same objectives except that we, we do it that way. Why don't you get into the, into the political fold and we'll manage and we're complementary more than we are adversaries? I asked the question to Hanushi himself. And uh, what he answered to me was that uh, they thought of the Salafists, no, number one, he said, still said that after the torching, this was the day before the torching of the American embassy, which I, where I interviewed him on the 13th of, uh, of September uh, in Tunis. And uh, he, um, he said to me, you know, it's just like what you did in Europe with the extreme right and the extreme left. After all, you, they came to Parliament and they were... Uh, uh, they were institutionalized, so they lost their radical dimension. Um, something which does not convince many of uh, his interlocutors. And even within uh, Nahda's ranks, there was a big debate about that. Because the day before, uh, I talked to, at length with Jbali, the prime minister, and Dilu, the minister of, uh, of human rights and transitional justice, and they were adamant against the Salafists, saying that this was, uh, this was a threat to the very um, um, political project of, uh, of Nahda, because Nahda being perceived as either incapable to rein in the Salafists or willing to give them a free reign as being their sort of paramilitary, what have you, would, this would alienate... The, the voting bank of, of Nada, the sort of petit bourgeois pious constituency, which does not identify itself with the Salafists. And um, so um, my feeling is that the, the brothers are divided on that, that um, uh, one of the big challenges of the, of the brotherhood is that uh, they are um, far more porous than they were in the past two differences uh, which now come in the open. And um, Hezbollah, because it's a sort of a Stalinist system, can maintain the sort, you know, we don't want to talk to you because they knew that uh, what I would ask the guys, you know, and they, they would not want me to, to have too many inroads into that. But they, um, uh, in, with the Nada people, I mean, you, you meet Sadiq uh, Shorok, for instance, who's a quasi-Salafist, and uh, others who are sort of uh, Muslim Democrats, you know, uh, sort of Christian Demo uh, green version of green, by, not by ecological means, but a uh, version of, uh, well, there are greens and greens, uh, of uh, Christian Democrats. And, 
As long as Ghanoushi is there in Tunisia, he's like a pope, if you wish, right, of the sort of this Muslim Brother Church. And he keeps the different factions together. But there are um, centrifugal tendencies, which are, I believe, extremely strong, and that the movements, now that they are in power, in power will have difficulties bringing together, right? as opposed when they were in a position when they had this sort of, of uh, opposition culture because under duress, under repression, they had to, to keep close together. They would not express their contradictions. Now it's not the same. And um, I, I, breached the, I asked this question. I was, I was with uh, Moro in Istanbul, um, the number two of uh, Nahda now, and we discussed that, and uh, he said, well, this is Ranoushi's problem, and he has to make it clear within the party, because Moro is very much hostile to the Salafists, who have attacked him twice already and almost blinded him. So, uh, you know, there is... Um, uh, I guess that some of them in the Muslim Brothers would be of the leaning that you mentioned, but others are threatened, that you know. And this is one of the, one the, one of the issues. How, how are the... Um, how are the Muslim brothers get out of this bath? You know, there is this famous uh, Moroccan proverb, you know, you do not get out of the hammam just you got, like you were when you got into the hammam. So was the hammam of government may cleanse the brothers in a way that they did not expect. Now, going back to the second part of the question, um, they reacted quite differently. I mean, as I mentioned, the uh, Qatar was very proactive uh, whereas Saudi Arabia was rather reactive. Uh, Qatar does not have um, a domestic uh, problem with its nationals. There are 200,000 inhabitants in Qatar, and uh, they are uh, baby-fed uh, by the state, right? Uh, they have problems with the future of this population because no one works in Qatar. Uh, the young generation is in a terrible uh, moral state of decay, and this is a major concern for uh, GCC elites now. Uh, but they uh, they have problems with you know the fact that they are uh, surrounded by expatriates. I mean, Dubai, which is not in Qatar, but Dubai is probably somewhere in the Guinness Book of Records. Maybe not only for its consumption of beer, but also because it has, I think, the smallest. Uh, ratio of nationals as opposed to foreign residents, which is 5% of nationals, 95% foreigners. And uh, so this is a major problem for them. How are they going to survive? Is, is all those Gulf states when they become, uh, you know, uh, uh, dependent, dependent states of a sort of Bangalore commonwealth or what have you? Um, Britain in reverse, right? The, um, the empire striking back from the from the dominions, and uh, the um, whereas Saudi Arabia has a major problem with its own population. There are poor people in Saudi Arabia. The, the oil rent is not equally uh, distributed, uh, and you have something like forty thousand princes, semi-princes, half-princes, or people who have access to a special line of financing. Uh, and the rest of the population, which uh, increased tremendously for a number of reasons, because the Saudi regime wanted to have a bigger population so that they, 
it would be you know political insurance for their, their military, except they don't fight that much. And uh, also because when people got rich after 1973, they got many wives and, uh, and many, many children. And, uh, and when the, the oil market turned the other way around in the, in the late uh, 70s, then there was a crisis, and then a number of people got no jobs, no training, and the, the Saudi welfare state is not able to deliver for everyone. This is why King Abdullah had to, to give out uh, $130 billion. But this is something which can, you know, this is a measure which is expedient on the short run, but then when you get accustomed to have $130 billion given out when you have a problem, this, of course, creates uh, major problems in, in, a, in a normal society, even though all societies are maybe abnormal societies. And uh, anyway, so they have different options. And uh, uh, the GCC nowadays, uh, as I see it, is being increasingly polarized. Saudi Arabia uh, has almost annexed Bahrain. And uh, the, the Bahrain Sunni establishment actually favors uh, and makes it very explicit uh, a union with uh, Saudi Arabia, which would be the only means to have the Shias in minority, right? Because <laughs> which is the, there is no other solution after all. Um, and uh, Kuwait is becoming uh, increasingly under Saudi influence, amongst other things, via uh, the Salafists in parliament and, and the like, and... Um, and the sort of the, the fact that the, the Kuwaiti political system dysfunctions, uh, you know, all the time, makes it, I believe, a sort of uh, more and more dependent on Saudi Arabia. Oman is also getting uh, more and more into uh, becoming a Saudi satellite, even though its, its, uh, it's leadership is Ebadi. Uh, because there is uh, oil is being dry is, is being dried out in, in Oman, and uh, Oman is perceived by Saudi Arabia as a strate strategic way to export its oil uh, without having to go through the Straits of Hormuz, i.e., with the danger of Iran. There are uh, pipelines which now go through Oman to the, uh, the Sea of Oman, i.e. the Indian Ocean, from Saudi Arabia. So which is, and this probably should be the, the revenue of Oman in the decades to come, if there is no world war in 2013 striking Iran or what have you. Um, so you have already four of the GCC states, which have, I mean, three have gone you know, very, very close to Saudi Arabia, are now, to, to an extent, being satellites of Saudi And you have two remaining states, Qatar, of course, which is, uh, Qatar is, is a country which has a very small population. It's the richest uh, country in the world per uh, GNP per, per inhabitant. And um, they're buying insurance everywhere. You know, uh, Tottenham, no, what was it called? Arsenal? No, it's not Arsenal. Whatever, football, soccer clubs in, in, this, in this country, in France, 
they buy everything. Uh, and um, they have Al Jazeera, they have uh, uh, alliance, military alliances uh, with the U.S., they, uh, they have Salafis, they have uh, whatever, they have everything. They, they buy insurance everywhere against you know, theft, rain, uh, sun, uh, burglary, uh, fire, what have you. Uh, and they, they make many friends. Um, well, they buy many friends. The, um, their problem is that, you know, they have to remain independent from Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia would love to gobble uh, Qatar. And they, they're using Iran to some extent as a means to counterbalance Saudi Arabia's embrace. Um, embrace, sorry. The, that's one thing. The, and then the, the Emirates are trying to have a more independent policy. Uh, but they also uh, they fear much more than Qatar the, um, the uncertainty of their, um, of their social fabric. On the one hand, because of the, the huge amount of the expatriates, the fact that the Emirates is a mosaic of seven uh, Emirates, you know, they are, do not all have the same interests. Uh, there are poor Emirates, Ras um, al-Khayma, Ajman, Fujaira, uh, where a number of tribal people have gotten closer to the Muslim Brotherhood. Brotherhood is strictly forbidden in the Emirates as opposed to Qatar. And also there is this expatriate problem, which creates a sort of identity issue in the Emirates, which is more complex than in Qatar. Uh, not as uh, big socially as in Saudi Arabia because, you know, they have more money for a lesser population, but which is also some sort of an existential threat. So, therefore, the, the cohesion of a GCC, I mean, may remain, but the GCC is, um, I mean, the, the, the stakes uh, have been uh, sort of uh, challenged, definitely, in depth by the Arab revolutions and... Uh, and uh, many there are panic-stricken at the idea that it will have to pay uh, for that, and this is going to cost a bundle at the end of the day. Thank you. The very far left man by the wall. Edward Pincherson, LSE graduate. Do you see the conflict in Syria going on and on, or not so long? Well, if I were able to answer that question, I would not be your uh, modest academic uh, on tour for free lectures, but I would be uh, rich, uh, well-paid, and being offered a million dollars for a lecture. Unfortunately, this is not the case. I'm, I'm going to disappoint you. I don't know. Uh, the, um, how can we read, nevertheless, into the, into the future? The... Um, uh, my understanding is that uh, it all depends on the way in which the Bashar al-Assad um, and his uh, group will be ousted. Um, I guess that, um, you know, as of now, regime forces are unable to reconquer territory that they have lost. 
I mean, they cannot send boots on the ground. Uh, Aleppo or the place where I was uh, last month, the, uh, all the areas bordering uh, Sy- uh, Turkey have been lost for the regime. And uh, they can bomb them, but they cannot send infantry. Uh, and um, nevertheless, uh, the Alawi mountain is not going to be conquered. Uh, and Damascus, which has a strong Alawi population, but where there are still a number of people who have sided with the regime uh, and who are uh, panic-stricken at the idea of the, uh, the Free Syrian Army and the, and the Salafis in its ranks and whatever taking over, is still holding. So uh, this is what I mentioned uh, my closing remarks, i.e., that the if you um, if you find a way to include in the opposition some of the groups which are still um, backing the regimes, the regime, then you have um, you have a process that will lead to the to the future, um, and that means that uh, but. You have to deal probably to some extent with Russia, with Iran, uh, and with the groups that back the, uh, the Assad regime. I think that uh, Bashar al-Assad, as far as he is concerned, is probably terminated. Uh, but um, uh, to what extent can he be dissociated from other people that will be included into a post-Bashar package and what is the level of trust uh, between uh, people who would be included in that package? In that package is, uh, is something which is, as of now, still very questionable. And, uh, and a test to that is that there is, um, I mean, the, the West is not willing to replay Libya in Syria. Not at all, uh, as of now. So um, this is where we are. Gentlemen, if their glasses in about the fourth row, you wait for the microphone if you would. Yes, I had a question about Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. Um, Given that you know America and Britain are such such good friends with Saudi Arabia, I I find it very strange that I know why we're friends with them because I I can't hear you. I I, I say I understand why America is friends with Saudi Arabia because it gives them control of that choke point which is very important globally, to control the oil choke point for America. But at the same time, Saudi Arabia supports the Salafists and sort of extremists who then in turn attack America and the West. So, for instance, a lot of the radicalization in Britain, uh, you know, this whole Londonistan, all of that, is is funded by Saudi Arabia, yet Britain loves, the British government loves Saudi Arabia. So it's bizarre... Sort of, uh, I just, if you could explain that a bit. It just seems like a weird sort of policy. Well, you know, explaining love is complicated. <laughs> Even for a Frenchman. Uh, but the, um, to a British audience in particular. Uh, even though no one is English at the LSC. Or this was, uh, I remember when I, when I taught here, I mean, the only one who... The, the only one whom I did not understand was the only English student in the, in the class, but he left after a while because he was fed up with all those wops. And uh, the, um, 
Um, well, love is about love-hate, as you know. This is lesson one, book of psychoanalysis. Uh, the um, Salafism, in its essence, is not revolutionary. It's about obedience. And, uh, and the, the, the brand of Salafism uh, that Saudis... Uh, uh, the Saudi state, at least, or the Saudi uh, political establishment backs is, is not, um, is apolitical. I mean, they, they claim that, you know, a revolt against uh, the powers that be is, uh, is forbidden. It's, uh, it's haram. And, um, and this is why they are liked, actually, by a number of people in the West when we have to deal with Muslim uh, Populations and um, those Salafis say, no, no, you should not, uh, you should respect the police, you should, uh, you know, so, okay. Um, Salafism was, was uh, launched in its modern version um, after, the, after Saudi Arabia was so rich as also insurance. I mean, they, this was the way they had, they made inroads into the Arab and the Muslim world to, to counter uh, Nasserite propaganda and so on and so forth. And, uh, and at the time, uh, Nasser was uh, <coughs> allied to the Soviet bloc, and uh, Saudi Arabia and Wahhabism uh, were part and parcel of the, of the West, if I may say so, uh, as strange as it may sound in retrospect. And, um, and they, they were backed, and at the time also the Muslim brothers, you know, remember Afghanistan. I mean, uh, the Afghan Jihad was a coalition of interests, of anti, an anti-Soviet coalition by uh, the U.S., Saudi Arabia, uh, Muslim brothers, Kuwait, got then the, the Jihad in Afghanistan was, was largely funded by the, by the Gulf, and... Uh, was the uh, the means to uh, to destroy the Soviet system? I mean, uh, you know, people always think of the Berlin Wall in 1989, which was the symbol of um, of the, the the end of the Soviet Empire. But um, in my view, the the most important date of uh, 1981 was the was the 15th of February. So when people, when I asked my students, they say, what's with the 15th of February? And I said, uh, what's, what, what was the day before? And they said, the St. Valentine, what are you talking about? And I said, yes, but this is the day when uh, Salman Rushdie issued the infamous fatwa. So what is he talking about? Is this the, the guy crazy? Uh, what has it has to do? And I said, what was to happen on the day after the fatwa? Soviet pullout from Afghanistan. So it was a means for the Iranians also to capture world attention from what was really important, which was the Soviet pullout from Afghanistan, because the Iranians had lost at the time in their attempt to, you know, to be the champions of the Arab world. The ones who had won were the Saudi-backed Sunni jihadists. And in compelling the Soviet, the Red Army, to pull out, they exposed the terrible weakness of the Red Army. And Gorbachev and the others knew that the Red Army was unable nowadays to fight. It was over. So 
you know, it was not only that, of course, it was the, the, the arms race and, and the whole, the big picture, but, but the last blow where their weakness was exposed and when the Russian establishment understood that the, game, the name of the game had changed was Afghanistan, was the Soviet Pulau, right? So in that game, in the, you know, in the fact that the U.S. paid a rather small price at the end of the day to topple the Soviet empire was the fact that the Salafists and the, and this, and, uh, the, the, the Jihad in Afghanistan was an important issue because this was the time when Salafism and, jihad, and jihadism blended, right? You had the Salafists who were not political. And then suddenly... Um, in Afghanistan, uh, you, had Salaf- you had Salafi Saudis who implemented jihad against the unbelievers, against the kuffar, against the, the, uh, against the, the, the reds, if I may, as they said. And uh, this is where, you know, the, the Al-Qaeda culture was created, which was this bizarre blend of um, the radical branch of the brothers, impersonated by Zawahiri, and uh, and the Salafi uh, Ben Laden culture, which was being radicalized and politicized, with a sort of mix between Zawahiri and Ben Laden. But before that, uh, Salafism was about obedience, about law and order, and uh, um, and um, nowadays, anyway, um, you know. When the neocons were in power in, uh, in America, I mean, they were very much asking themselves questions like the one you're asking yourself. And uh, I remember one day visiting Paul Wolfowitz in the, in the Pentagon and, uh, uh, because I would ask curious to, about that. And uh, while I was in the waiting room, instead of listening to, you know, a redneck speaking English with a middle, Midwest accent, I... I had uh, guys with um, Shia clerical uh, robes speaking Arabic with a Middle East accent, and um, uh, that were obviously, you know, Iraqi Shias. So when I was introduced to the undersecretary, and I said, uh, "Well, uh, I was amazed. I mean, the heart of the Pentagon, if you know, across all those uh, people who search you with uh, close crop hair and the like." And um, to see all those Shias in the middle of the Pentagon. So, you know, I'm a frog. I don't understand those things. And uh, he said, hey, you frog, you don't understand nothing. Because uh, those guys gave me a ring of applause like I never had in my life. And, you know, we got to get rid of the damn uh, Al-Qaeda radical Sunnis. And who are our allies? The Shias. And he said something that would cater into the... The, the paranoid worldview of the Sunni preachers in Lebanon or wherever now said, so, you know, Shias are just like Jews after all. You know, they always experience uh, harsh life, oppression, uh, and just like the, the rabbis of Judaism and the rabbis uh, kept the community together thanks to knowledge, thanks to the learn, learned experience, the ayatollahs of Shiism kept Shiism alive, right? Now, when, uh, and there was this sort of intellectual exigency on both grounds, both groups, and uh, 
when secularization, the, tide, the, the wave of secularization hit those groups in the end of the 19th century, well, the sons of the Ayatollahs and the sons of the Rebbe's became members of the communist parties, which is to an extent true because the Shias were the, the only Arabs who became communists except for the Jews and the Greek Orthodox in Lebanon. And, uh, they, um, and then when communist was out of fashion, they all became you know, pro-West. And, uh, you know, there, there is a strong pro-West constituency in Iraq amongst the Shias. We're going to boost them, get rid of Saddam Hussein, who's a Sunni, and, uh, and then with the pro-American Shias in power in uh, Iraq, there, this will create a sort of virtuous circle of attraction, and the Iranians will, the Iranian so, civil society, which is also pro-West, will oust the, the clerics, and uh, we'll put a lot of uh, Iraqi oil on the market outside of OPEC, and then this is going to be the end of Saudi Arabia, which derives its power because it's the swing producer. When we talk about Saudi Arabia, it's the yeah, of course, uh, it's the swing producer of, of oil in the region. And, you know, at the times, the, there were maps that circulated that gave nightmares uh, to uh, my Saudi friends where the, the map of the Arabian Peninsula was redrawn. I mean, the holy places uh, in Mecca and Medina were given back to the Hashemites, uh, who are now in Jordan, who had been ousted in the late, in the late 20s by the, by the Sauds. So the Hashemites would move down to, uh, it's a sort of you know, musical chairs in English, yeah. you uh, the, <laughs> They were moved from Jordan to, uh, to Mecca. So you had a new uh, Hashemite uh, um, uh, state for Mecca and Medina. And then as there was a vacuum in, in Jordan, then the Palestinians were moved and the Arabs from Galilee were moved to Jordan. So Israel was kosher, if I say so. Then... Uh, on the other side, to punish the Saudis a little more, because the, uh, the oil fields in Saudi Arabia are located uh, where you also have Shias. Though it's not true anymore because there, there was a massive uh, uh, population transfer from poor Sunni areas to the oil-producing countries of late for political reasons. But this is the new con- that's the way of the new consul. So they would carve out a sort of petrolistan uh, in the oilistan in, uh, in the eastern part of Saudi Arabia with uh, LSE trained uh, or uh, whatever uh, um, SSRC uh, sponsored uh, Ayatollah uh, who would, uh, you know, who would oversee the oil production. And, uh, and then what would be left for the Saudis would be, you know, the sands in the middle with no money from the pilgrimage and no oil and no water because all the water is is desalinized, uh, and, and then you would have uh, Riyadh, you know, being eaten up by sand, sandstorm after sandstorm, and the two towers, the, the two um, sexual symbols of Riyadh, the two big towers would be uh, overwhelmed with sand. This, of course, did not, did not um, materialize because um, the Saudis had, had a number of means to counteract that. They deployed a very, very uh, powerful and strong policy. There were two groups that were against any kind of success, American success of Iran, that were antagonistic at the time, but that kept their differences low because they had a common target, get the Americans out of Iraq. Saudi Arabia, 
that uh, fueled most of the insurgency, the Sunni insurgency, and the Iranians who just sat waiting uh, uh, while there was jihad between uh, the uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq and what have you, and the Americans. I mean, the Shia majority, which was being lashed out by the radical Sunni uh, groups, sat there and at the end of the day, they suddenly they seized. They, they just had to, you know, to to reap the Iraqi fruit that had been, uh, if I may say so, harvested for them by by the U.S. Um, and the British. Never forget the Brits military. So um, this was the big the big issue at the time. Uh, it is now quite clear for anyone who reads uh, the politics of the Middle East that this grand fantasy of the neocon uh, led to a total failure and that you know I don't I'm not sure that <laughs> that in Wolfowitz's mind or in Richard Pearl's mind or whatever they, they, in their worst nightmares they, they, they could not foresee that their invasion would lead to the fact that Iran is now under Iranian control or under strong Iranian influence Iraq is not Iran. so let's have one last question the man over against the wall there one, one minute, okay? Yeah, you have a very... very as far as my answer is concerned. Um, my name is Tim Neustadt. I'm a research student at SOAS. And um, you've described a very diverse landscape of Islamist groups. I, I'm sorry, is it because I'm being deaf or because the sound system? It's an echo. It's not very clear. Can you speak up without the microphone? All right. um, you have described a very diverse landscape... Wondering whether you envision them to have more philosophical application in the future, or rather that they are going to come to some sort of agreement when it comes to questions of policy, tourism, technology, or cultural heritage rights. Back to that, I'm wondering how helpful is the um, terminology we are still using? You have, of course, contributed greatly to the discussion of uh, the terminology like. Extremists, integrists. I think you even uh, spoke about. <coughs> I'm wondering how helpful is uh, all this technology, and where are we now? All these diverse groups. So, if I understand you well, if you will, I should not retire immediately as I had planned to, but uh, still work on my vocabulary, right? Which is okay. Right. Good move. Um, well. Um, um, as the, the, the object of study changes, uh, the categories that you use to, to think uh, them through, if I may say so, definitely have to, have to move. And um, I've tried to, to deal with those issues over the last uh, 30 to 40 years. And uh, hopefully I'm not going to say that in another 40 years. <laughs> with the level that's 80 years. Oh, oh. And uh, well, I'm no, I'm no Saudi royal. I mean, I <laughs> will not be. And uh, the um, oh no, I don't think there is any chance I become. No. And uh, who knows? And uh, the um, um, I, I, I'm I I think if I'm not mistaken that I, I'm the one who coined the word uh, the term Islamist and um, with my Prophet and Pharaoh book in the 1980s. Uh, 
when I, I coined us that word, um, I sort of, you know, I, I listened to what the act, social actors were saying, and they, they would use, uh, in Arabic, um, they would say, Haraka al-Islamiyya, which is the Islamic, not ist, Islamic movement. And uh, I, I adapted it in translation as Islamist movements originally in, in frog speech, which is my dialect, you know, which I still express myself in mainly, and was mouvement islamiste. And, uh, and it was not understood because my first American translator, uh, you know, did not know what to do with this uh, new coined language, and I was too young to impose anything on translators at the time. Those days have changed now. And um, give them a harsh life. And a hard time. And, the, um, and he translated that into Islamicist movements, right, which made no sense, which was horrible. Even I could sound that it sounded horrible in English. And um, the... Um, what did I mean by that? I, mean, I meant groups that used Islam or Islamic parlance or Islamic categories to implement political change as to differentiate them from others who were also Islamic, if you want, but who did not use haraka, who did not use a movement, i.e. mobilization, in order to achieve their means, right? Then... Uh, this, uh, this had to be put into perspective as I got more into the field and uh, where I stressed the importance of movements which had not uh, been that visible to me in Egypt in the, in the early 80s, i.e. the movements that were not political but were uh, mobilizing constituencies on a different um, like the Salafist, which we mentioned at the time, or the Tablir movement, which I discovered while studying those movements in the outskirts of French uh, cities at the time. Uh, and then I sort of, um, of tried my, my hand at an, another categorization, which was uh, re the, the issue of re-Islamization, uh, bottom-up or top-down, right? I mean, people who were trying to seize the state and re-Islamize society uh, top-down, after they had seized the state, or others who were trying to re-Islamize society bottom-up, right? And, uh, and then, then you had, and this is something I learned from London, like many things I learned, one day visiting Abu Hamza, who's now a, an American resident, as I understand, he has a green card, if I may say so, but a different shade of green than what we think. Um, uh, Abu Hamza, whom I interviewed at length in, uh, what was the place where it was? Uh, yeah, Finsbury Park, exactly, sorry, thank you. In the Finsbury Park Mosque. Um, it was, you know, as I was talking to him that I coined, which also I think I, think I coined, this, um, this Salafi jihadism. He's the one who explained to me, you know, there are different kinds of Salafis. There are the Salafi Sheikhi, the Salafis, I mean, you say that, that followed the Sheikhs or the Sheikhs or the 
checks, uh, checkbooks, and uh, the uh, who were obedient to to the oil guys, right? And there were the Salafis, jihadis, that was him, that blended uh, jihad with Salafism, and this was, you know, what would what was developing also as uh, what would develop into Al Qaeda and things like that. So, therefore, you have to, you have to adjust to a field which is moving, and I'm, uh, I'm um, so I'm ready to 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 carve out some new terms out of the Arab Revolution. But this will be for the next lecture. Is it? How did it fall? <laughs> okay. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you.